So let's pray. Lord, we know that nothing like that can happen apart from your spirit. You are the vine, we are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we ask you, Father, with a dependent heart and a desire to see you glorified, Lord, would you, um, would you teach us? Would you change us? Would you make us more like Christ? Because we've been together under the preaching of your word. Make it so, Father, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 4 today. This is the last chapter of this short letter. It won't be long before uh, we'll be out of 2 Timothy and on to the next thing. And no, I'm not going to tell you what that is yet. If you're familiar with the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you've probably heard of what is called the downgrade controversy. Spurgeon spent the final four years of his life at war with the trends of early modernism, which he rightly saw as a threat to biblical Christianity. The name by which history remembers this controversy comes from the title of, of a series of articles that Spurgeon published in his monthly magazine, which was called The Sword and the Trowel. Spurgeon wanted to admonish his flock, his church, about the dangers of moving away from the historic position of biblical Christianity. Biblical truth, he says, is like the pinnacle of a steep, slippery mountain. One step away, and you find yourself on the downgrade. Once a church or individual Christian starts moving down this precipitous incline, Spurgeon says, momentum takes over. Recovery is unusual and occurs only when Christians get back on what he called the upline through spiritual revival. Now those who have been, those of you who have been a part of Calvary Bible Church for more than a couple of decades, and there are only a few of you, you but you know that this was the story of our mother church. By the time Pastor Jim Jim Pittman came and became senior pastor here. The church was mired in all kinds of unbiblical ideas, traditions, and practices, and frankly, the only hope for this church in which you are sitting today is revival from the pure ministry of the Word of God. Thankfully, that's exactly what Jim brought to this church and what he trained me to bring to this church over the period of years that he and I served together. It's difficult, it's difficult to describe how rare a phenomenon it is for a church to come back from terminal atrophy. But this is what the Lord did for Calvary Bible Church. And we will be forever grateful. This is his work. This is his work. And Paul understood the dynamics of the downgrade. It, it has been a danger to the church even before he gave up being a homicidal Pharisee. The downgrade typically begins with the leaders of the church in an effort to be more effective at reaching people with the gospel. They begin to make changes in how they communicate and how they prosecute ministry. 
Left unchecked, it, it doesn't take very long for an unsuspecting congregation to embrace these new methods and strategies and are imperceptibly led onto the slippery slope of the downgrade. What was true then is, is still true today. It has recently and infamously been manifest in both individual pastors and whole denominations just within the past weeks and months. The question before us this morning, however, is how does a pastor or a team of elders protect their church from the downgrade? How do we protect the church or revive the church from the effects of the downgrade, the effects of stepping off the, the slippery slope and finding yourself slipping into all manner of foolishness in an attempt to win people to Christ. In our text this morning, I see a four-part prescription for protecting and reviving the church from the downgrade. And so here they are. I'll tell you where we're going. Faithful pastors, here's the charge, faithful pastors must, number one, obey the sobering command to preach the word. Secondly, they must practice spirit-filled boldness in preaching the word. Third, they must understand the serious urgency of preaching the word. And number four, they must embrace the sacrificial stewardship of preaching the word. And before we begin, as is our tradition, let's stand together and read this passage. I have been long waiting to get to this text and I got here early this morning to trim it down so you wouldn't miss lunch. But there is, this is such an important, important text of Scripture. Let me read it to you. Please follow along. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I will tell you now, as you're beginning to be seated again, that this whole sermon is preached by your pastor, to your pastor, and to the elders of this church, and any other pastor who may be listening. Your small group questions will take a different course they will ask you about how you should listen to the preaching of the Word. And how do you prepare to listen to the preaching of the Word? So I have my responsibility this morning, and you have yours. And may God give us the grace to fulfill both. The first part of Paul's prescription for pastors is, number one, obey the sobering command to preach the Word. As you know, the several verses leading up to where we are today in this portion of Scripture uh, is all about the Scriptures. 
Through them, we have learned about the authority of Scripture. We've learned about the efficacy of Scripture. We learned about the sufficiency of Scripture. And now as we start chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul brings us to the long-expected climax of that whole discussion in this sobering command. Verse 1, let me read it to you again. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. I've told you as a congregation before that whenever I'm out of the pulpit, no matter where I am in the world, I communicate back to whoever is about to preach, either the night before or the morning of, and just call and say, Brother, I'm praying for you, and you know the admonition I'm going to give you. Whatever you do, preach the word. Preach the word. And now you're about to learn why. To say this is a sobering command is a fantastic understatement. It's the kind of encounter that rivals what Moses experienced when he heard the voice speak to him out of the burning bush. It is reminiscent of the encounter Isaiah had when he found himself laying on the floor of the temple before the thrice holy God Almighty. And Paul addresses Timothy as though he is standing between God the Father on one side and God the Son on the other side. And he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead. The King James says, the quick and the dead. Paul is telling Timothy that the charge he's laying on him is to be received as from the very throne of God itself. It is coming down to him from the highest echelons of the court of the Godhead. And Paul is not the source of this charge. Paul's not the source of any message that he delivers. He is merely God's messenger to Timothy and to every man who calls himself a pastor, faithful or otherwise. If you are an unfaithful preacher, an unfaithful shepherd, this text is for you. And if you're striving with all your might to be a faithful shepherd, this text is for you. Notice how Paul describes Jesus here. This is frightening. He is the eternal judge of all men, whether living or dead. We know from John's gospel that the Father has given all judgment over to the Son. He will be, he himself who died on the cross to save all who would believe, to save all who will receive the invitation that he gives. One day we will stand before him as judge, not as savior, not as a baby, not as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. One day every person will stand before him to hear the divine verdict on his or her life. It is appointed for you the author of Hebrews says, wants to die. And after that, you meet Jesus. You will stand in the dock 
as it were, in his courtroom. And the verdict will be pronounced upon your life. Furthermore, Paul charges Timothy and all pastors by the weight and authority of his appearing and his kingdom. I mean, it's one thing to think of Almighty, the Almighty Judge living you know, somewhere out there. It's quite another to consider the fact that all of us have a divine appointment in the courtroom of the king when he returns to set up his kingdom. And Paul is saying, Timothy, pastor, don't you ever forget that this ministry to which you have been called is not merely a job. It's not merely a career or a vocation. If you are a pastor, then three things are true. Number one, you serve the king. And you serve at his bidding and his pleasure. Number two, he has called you with a sobering calling. And number three, when he appears to establish his kingdom, he will render the only verdict on your ministry that matters. So forget about what people say about your ministry. Forget it when they say, you're too narrow, you're too literal. Don't pay any attention. Your judge is not the men and women who come and sit and hear you preach. It is the Lord who has given you his word. Perhaps this is why James warns in James chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brethren, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. One day, Jesus will appear before the, the judgment seat. He will stand on the backside of the judgment seat, as it were, or sit on the judgment seat. And all of us will appear before Christ to give an account for, as Jesus would say, every careless word. This kind of talk doesn't go over well with the present culture, does it? Not even the current Christian culture appreciates this kind of preaching. In Spurgeon's day, the besetting downgrade was called modernism. We might call the besetting downgrade of our day positivism. Christian people say they love Jesus and believe his word, but they insist on hearing only that from his word which makes them feel positive and uplifted. But listen, beloved, not everything in the Bible is intended to be positive and uplifting. James himself says, humble yourselves. Put yourself in the dust before God. Mourn, grieve. Humble yourself before the, the mighty hand of God. Not everything in the Bible is meant to be positive and, and uplifting. So what does a preacher do in a situation where the general audience doesn't want the hard sayings of Jesus, the hard sayings of the book. Answer, preach the word. Preach it anyway. The word for preach here, caruso, means to announce, to proclaim. Consider the days when Paul lived. You remember who was in charge? It was Nero. Nero. I mean, of all the wicked, you think we, never mind, we're not going down there. 
of all the wicked leaders that, that could have been set on the throne, Nero was emperor. Nero, who coincidentally would die the year after he had Paul executed. Nero wanted to make, if he wanted to make a proclamation, and he did, if he wanted a proclamation to go out to the Roman world, he couldn't just tweet it out in a smartphone. He couldn't broadcast it with a selfie on Instagram. He couldn't get it out via the nightly news. He didn't even have the technology to make the declaration in the morning paper. No, when the emperor wanted to make a proclamation, he would send out heralds by the hundreds, perhaps thousands. And they would go all over the Roman world. They were charged with the solemn duty to announce the word of the king. And the herald would typically arrive in a town, go to the town square or its equivalent, announce, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Let it be known this day that the king has born to him a son and heir to the throne. Everybody would need to know that. Or he might send out a message that the king has announced that those all over the world in his kingdom should be taxed. Get ready for the tax. Or that in celebration of a great Roman victory, a holiday is declared and must be celebrated all over the realm. Beloved, this is what it means to preach. It means to take the message of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to every hamlet in his kingdom. That means the whole world. Announcing that all who look to him, confessing their unworthiness and their sin, who declare their faith in the person and atoning work of his Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, and humbly ask that their sin debt might be canceled, no matter how great it may be. Such a one, the king says, will receive free and eternal pardon and will be loved, adopted, protected, and saved forever as a demonstration of the glory of his grace. That's the message that we are to herald. And if a pastor or elder team wants to protect their church from the downgrade, they must obey the serious command, the sobering command to preach the word. Well, more could be said on that to be sure. Second, they need to practice the spirit-filled boldness of preaching the word. Boldness, I want to suggest to you, is the fruit of confidence, and confidence comes from being prepared. And notice what Paul tells Timothy and every, every pastor, that he must always be prepared. He must always be prepared. Look at the end of, of verse 1. And by his appearing and his kingdom, verse 2, preach the word, be ready. Be ready. The original word here was a military term, meaning to stand beside, to stand at alert, at attention beside. It carries the idea of eagerness and readiness. It was often used to describe a military guard who was always at his post, always with weapon in hand, always ready to do what needed to be done. Such men 
are always ready. They're always ready. Around here, we often tell our interns and we remind ourselves as pastors, you need to be ready to preach, pray, or die in a minute. And that means we're ready in season and out of season, whether people are eager to hear the king's proclamation or whether they are resistant to his word. It matters not to God's herald. He's simply the mailman delivering the message. It's dangerous work to be sure, but it's pretty simple. Just say what he says. Just explain what he has said. And faithful pastors are on guard all the time. They always have an arrow knocked in their bow. They keep their finger on the trigger. They are always on red alert. Their hand never releases from the hilt of their sword. In other words, they're ready. They're ready. The Greco-Roman moralists often would sit around and discuss when it might be appropriate or inappropriate to speak with frankness and boldness. And Paul would say to Timothy and is saying to Timothy, Timothy, you must declare the word with all boldness all the time. All the time. That doesn't mean you yell at people. It doesn't mean you're nasty at people. You can do that and be gracious and kind and even quiet. How is he to do that? Well, if you're a committed student of the Bible, you'll be interested to observe in this passage, that there are fully nine imperatives in these five verses. Nine commands that dictate what Timothy and all pastors are to do. So let me just lay them down in rapid succession. Pastors are commanded to preach the word, be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill their ministry. All of these are imperatives. This is not the totality of what a pastor is called to, but in this case, it's as definitive as the very first statement. None of these items are optional in the work of pastoring. We are commanded to do all of these things, and yet we might say that eight of the nine imperatives are just different facets of this one majestic diamond called preaching the word. And so we have preach the word. And then we have eight more imperatives that tell us how we're to preach the word. And the point here is in verse 2 is that he is to be prepared and ready to do it all the time. Be ready. Be ready. Be always ready to preach the, the word. This, every time I look at it, it reminds me of times when I've been over in Russia and nobody knows who's going to preach. This is a, I, I used to think it was quaint. I think it's a terrible practice. <laughs> Sunday morning, you get there, and the brothers meet in the pastor's office, and that's when you find out who's preaching that morning, and there's typically three men who are going to preach. And uh, I was unprepared for that the first time I went over, and sure enough, I ended up being the lead preacher. What do you do? You grab a, a passage of Scripture and you run with it. And ever since then, uh, days before Sunday, my wife and I are texting. Praise the Lord for texting these days. Honey, what do, you, who, do we know who's going to preach on Sunday? Not yet, but I'm ready. <laughs> Not yet, but I'm ready. And sure enough, 
Sunday morning rolls around, Sunday school is over. We still don't know. We go to the room under the choir loft, and Brother Pascal, you get 15 minutes, and Brother Mock, you preach for 15 minutes, and Brother Kirk, you preach for 45, 50 minutes. Okay. Uh, good thing I'm ready. But you always have to be ready. This preaching, says Paul, involves two negatives and one positive element. The two negatives are reprove and rebuke. Again, in relation to preaching, your preaching should include reproving and rebuking. The term reprove means to turn the light on, to put the light on false ideas, false teaching, false belief. You remember back in Ephesians 5, 11, where Paul said, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, you ready? Expose them. Expose them. That uh, doesn't sound very positive. And listen how Paul gives the, the same command to Titus. As a faithful preacher of God's word, he was to, here's Paul's words to Titus, exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Well, that doesn't seem very positive either. But it's necessary if one is to keep the church from the downgrade, the one who preaches the word must reprove. He must put light on error. And, and, and some with a tender heart will say, that's not loving. That's not gracious. Um, if it is from God, then it is true and loving and gracious. Just as you tell your children, if you have them, before you discipline them, son, I love you. And I'm doing this because I love the Lord and I love you. The Lord commands me to do certain things, and this is one of them. And he commands me to do it because he loves you. And this is an expression of God's love to you and my love to you. And you may not understand that right now, but you will. One day, one day, this is good for you. And this is the way it is. And when you back off of that, what happens in the church is the same thing that happens in the family when it becomes child-centered. It becomes a, a confused mess, and it becomes an unhappy place. The next term ramps that theme up a little more. To rebuke means to convict someone of sinning. We see this repeatedly in the gospel. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. This is more than just casting a little light on it. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And when you rebuke a person, there are certain consequences if they don't repent. In Matthew 18, we learn that eventually, if a sinning brother fails to repent, the issue needs to be addressed in an increasingly public manner. That's no fun. That doesn't sound very positive. No pastor or team of elders has the authority, listen, no pastor and no elder board has the authority, can I say that again? No pastor and no group of elders has the authority to de-emphasize or delete God's directive on this point. Some will say, if we practice discipline, our church will shrivel up and die. Well, that's probably not true. It probably will get smaller. 
And that may be the best thing that ever happened to your church. Um, some say, well, you know, if we, if we, um, if we did discipline, we, w- we would do nothing but. We would be doing discipline all the time. And to which I would respond, for a little while, that may be true. You may feel like the only thing you're doing is discipline, but I assure you, it's just like disciplining your children. You're only go- it's only going to have to be something that you work at every day for a little while. They get it. They get it. Or in the case of church people, they leave. Some of them get it, some of them leave. In our case, the fact that the elders were willing to obey God by disciplining unrepentant believers has been one of the features that have drawn many believers, many mature believers in Christ to our church. They want to be under the limited, delegated authority that leaders of the church have. They want to be under leadership that is willing to say hard things and do hard things. And that means they must be willing to be rebuked. Here's the point. Any pastor who refuses to preach, teach, and counsel the negative imperatives of Scripture is an unfaithful shepherd. And so here's the admonition. Don't trust him. Don't follow him. Don't join his church. No matter how flashy, no matter how appealing, no matter how much it may be growing, no matter how much energy, you don't know where that energy is coming from. We have to be discerning, beloved. You have to be discerning. The Lord is going to lead some of you. There are people in this church I know who are going to be leaving because God is putting them somewhere else, either in a different part of the world or in a different part of Texas or in a different state. There may be a time when you have to decide what church are you going to join. Beware. Be careful. Be discerning. Look for men of God who understand this admonition to preach the word and to do it boldly. The third term is positive here. It's a positive command. The preacher or pastor must exhort. Now, exhort means to come alongside or to encourage. It comes from parakaleo. It's the same term that's used of the Holy Spirit. They come beside. It it carries the sense of delivering comfort and consolation. Paul says his ministry to the Thessalonians was like a father with his children. Yes, the pastor must be bold in addressing sin, but he must also tenderly apply the loving grace of God as well. And even that takes a degree of boldness in part. Because when someone's really hurting, you don't know what to say. And you're scared you're going to say the wrong thing. And what Paul is saying on the authority of God himself is, speak. Don't give him a theology lesson, but speak. Speak God's truth to them. Give them the consolation of the Spirit. This kind of ministry requires boldness, but it also requires two other things, namely, Patience and teaching. Paul says, we must reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. Complete patience. Complete patience. That means every kind and all sorts of patience. That means you don't run out of patience with people. Because you're, you, know, you know why he says these kinds of things? Because you're going to be tempted to run out of patience 
with people. It's a daunting command. I heard Alistair Begg one time say on this passage, he said, um, why couldn't God have just said, with a wee bit of patience? <laughs> or with intermittent patience? You know, I was patient, now I'm done with you. Um, look, I, I approached you, step one, and uh, we're done step one, let's move to step four. Um, no, 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 no. It's with all patience, all kinds of patience, all sorts of patience. Keep being patient, being patient, being patient. We not only have to be bold in our preaching, we have to be patient with people as well because many of them won't be able to take or respond to the truth as quickly or as directly as you may want them to. And it may be that whatever sin or false teaching they're in, it took them a long while to get in. Don't think you're going to get them out with one conversation. Be patient. Pray for them. Love them. Serve them. Show up on their doorsteps. Send them <laughs> cookies. Love. And it's speaking the truth in love, right? So love them, but also speak the truth. It may take a significant period of time. You're going to have to patiently endure as God does with us. And aren't you glad God is patient with you? When you wish that someone would be more patient with you, consider this. God is patient with you, and he expects you to manifest that patience to others. And along the way, with the patience, there may be need for further instruction. That's why he says, with all patience and instruction, we may, we may need to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, but it should be done with patient instruction. Someone once said, men will not be won to the truth by scolding, but by patient instruction. And be slow to anger. And by that I mean, be slow to frustration. Be slow to be peevish with the people that you're ministering to. It just doesn't seem to get it or whatever. Be kind, be gentle, be affirming as you can. The man of God will be bold in his obedience, but that boldness must be tempered by the Holy Spirit who is determined to bear in us the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's a harvest of righteousness that does not spring up overnight. So, by all means, be bold. But let your boldness be under the sway of the Holy Spirit and render comfort and tender compassion as well. If you can't do both, then stay out of the ministry. If you're all truth and no love, become a writer, not a pastor. If you're all love and no truth, just repent. You're a Christian. Learn the truth and minister the truth. And use your loving disposition to open doors for the truth. So be bold, but be kind and gracious and affectionate. So if pastors are going to effectively 
protect the church from the downgrade. They must obey the sober command to preach the word. They must practice the spirit-filled boldness of preaching the word. And number three, they must understand the serious urgency of preaching the word. Look at verses three and four. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. When I read this passage, I, I hesitate to tell you this story because it might ruin this hymn. Um, you know the story of It Is Well With My Soul, Horatio Spafford all his loss after the Chicago fire. He stayed behind, vacation with his family, sent his wife and his daughters over to England. Somewhere along the way, there was a terrible accident in the fog. The ship went down. He gets a telegraph from England, from his wife, and it says, saved alone. Lost all three of his daughters. The story is, he gets on a boat, and he heads over to England. When they get to the spot where the ship went down and his daughters died, he wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll, right? We, we could sing that right now. It is well with my soul. Now, how many of us have sung that song to our own encouragement and to the encouragement of others? And before I tell you the rest of it, I will to my dying day continue singing that song. And many of you don't know that Horatio Spafford eventually went off the rails with regard to his faith and joined some kind of Jewish sect, a cult, um, some false teaching that he was wrapped up in and abandoned what he first believed. If it can happen to Horatio Spafford, oh my goodness, it could happen to anyone. And so be shocked at what happened this past week with the brother, the former brother who has abandoned his faith, but don't be surprised. Be warned. Be warned. The term for here indicates purpose. For, look at verse 3. For the time is coming. And the reason, this, is, this is, indicates purpose, right? The reason pastors must be bold to reprove, rebuke, and exhort in their preaching is because what is at stake? Here we have a whole generation of professing Christians who are in danger of going astray. And because they come to shallow churches, so their faith never goes deep. Their anchor is hooked to something that will not hold them in the storm. Their ballast is light and their ship is easily tossed. Listen, if there ever was a time when religious people were less and less likely to endure or literally to put up with the sound words of the Bible, it is now. And Paul talked about in season and out of season. The season we are in today, I submit to you, is the out season and becoming more and more out, out of season one might dare say that there has never been a season in American history where so many people take offense at the Bible. What do religious people want in our day? Well, Paul says they want teaching that will tickle their ears. 
Strange phrase. That is, they want preaching that will satisfy their appetite for positive, feel-good affirmation. They want spiritual ear candy. Desiring to have one's ears tickled means desiring to hear only what one enjoys. And so what do they do? They surround themselves, or literally the term here means they pile up, they accumulate teachers who will play to their desires. One author writes these insightful words. In periods of unsettled faith, skepticism and mere curious speculations in matters of religion, teachers of all kinds swarm like flies in Egypt. The demand creates the supply. The hearers invite and shape their own preachers. If the people desire a calf to worship, a ministerial calf maker is readily available. The master of superstition is the people, and in all superstition, wise men follow fools. And by the way, the word passions here, to suit their passions, they accumulate men to suit their passions, that's the same word, epithumia, that's used in James 4, it's translated in lusts. They want the wrong things. They have a strong desire for the wrong things. And because their religious appetites are being satisfied on falsehood, they turn away from the truth and wander into myths, legends, and fables. This is a dangerous game. To believe in God is, you know, let me just, just take a moment and let, let you rest for a second because I want this to sink in. To believe in God is simply to believe in reality. It is to accept reality. It is the first building block of reality. If you get that building block wrong, everything else is up for grabs. Hence, what has happened in the last 24 hours in our nation. To believe in God is simply to believe what is real. God is. And he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. On the other hand, the word of God is clear that many, many people only pretend to seek him. To be sure, they know something about God, but they don't live in relationship with God. They are pretenders whose real faith in a God of their imagination, will in the end leave them on the wrong side of the judge's final verdict for their lives. And then it will be too late. Hence the urgency of the message. It's more urgent now than ever. But Timothy was not to follow the pattern, that kind of pattern for ministry. He was to resist the urge to join in with the clever, appealing, crowd-pleasing tactics of unfaithful men. To join them would be to take his congregation perilously close to the edge of the downgrade. And Paul wants him to have nothing to do with it. Paul wants him to guard the flock of God. Rather, he was to obey the sober command to preach the word Practice the spirit-filled boldness of preaching the word and understand the serious urgency of preaching the word. 
And then one more thing. Timothy was willingly, he was to willingly embrace the sacrificial stewardship of preaching the word. Notice verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. He said that before, hasn't he? Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The ministry pastors have been given is a high calling. Spurgeon once said, why would you settle to become a king? God has called you to be a preacher. To fulfill this calling, the pastor must maintain a sober mind. That is, he must be moderate, self-controlled, wise in his behavior. He's not to be a joker or a clown. He's not even called to be perpetually or particularly clever. Rather, he is just to be found faithful. And faithfulness includes obeying God's call when the people to whom you are preaching turn on you. I praise God that that's happened very rarely in my 25 years at Calvary Bible Church. But this is normal life for the minister. Some people will name their child after you. Some people will name their dog after you. <laughs> no matter. A preacher is to endure hardship like a good soldier. Moreover, he's to actively engage in evangelism, which is the discipline that I suppose has the potential to get us into the most trouble these days. He must be eager to herald the message of salvation. It does no good to be ready if you're not actually speaking. Finally, all of these things make up the substance of the call to, in Paul's word, fulfill your ministry. Leave nothing undone. Timothy, I'm about to be done, and I can say with a clear conscience, to use a athletics metaphor, I've left it all on the field. Timothy, follow my example. Give it everything you've got. Fulfill your ministry. During the Reformation, The battle cry was not only sola scriptura, that is, scripture alone. It was also tota scriptura, which means all of scripture. All of scripture. You know why we preach expositorily around here and we teach expositionally around here? Even when we're doing counseling, even when we're training people to do uh, discipleship, we try to find the text and explain the text that will speak to that issue. Why? Why? Because we believe that God has called us to proclaim the whole counsel of God. All of the Bible. All of the Bible. We must be heralds of the whole message of the king. The herald is to, is to not add anything to the message or take anything away to make it more palatable, his calling is clear. Beloved, I hope, this, I hope this does to your heart what it did to mine the first time I, I heard this, mess, this uh, passage preached. 
I hope it gives you a greater love for Scripture, a greater love for God, a greater sense of urgency in the hearing of the Word of God, accurately, carefully presented and explained. This is our calling, and it is very clear. And so I restate it. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, the, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. The solemn calling of every pastor is to soberly, boldly, urgently, and sacrificially preach the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. It is your word to us. It is the message of the king. And we don't need Twitter for that. We don't need Instagram for that. We have a book. We have a book. And it is the scriptures, the very words of God. Father, I pray that we would treasure it more now than we did before we came. And we would love it more, read it more, obey it more. And that we would actively engage in listening to what the Word of God says. And change us, deepen us, strengthen us, O oh Father, we pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.